Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Megan. And Megan's bringing us a story today. I'm shaking. I'm shaking the bag over here. Shaking the sack. Already. So I need to shake my Grigri because I'm going to bring you another New Orleans case. Are you? I eventually will give you something other than Louisiana. But when I've been there recently, mm-hmm. I sucked up all the information. And I love that you sucked it up and you're spitting it out to us. <laughs> I'm going to shake my little raccoon bones. I can, almost, I can almost hear the raccoons. <laughs> Somewhere I hear a, ra- a male raccoon squealing right now. <laughs> He's so sad about what's happening. Oh, yes. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back to other episodes because I can't explain it every time, but we're no, weird. No, we can't. We are. We, <laughs> we're we're, we're fucking weird. Yeah, and we apparently we have voodoo charms, which are known as Gree Gree. Mm-hmm. And that brings me right into the murders of Teresa and Leonide Moiti. So I've never not, heard. You I haven't. Do. Most people hopefully have not. And I'm going to explain why. So these are lovingly referred to as the trunk murders. Jesus. Right. And you're going to hear why as well. But let me tell you what's going to be your favorite part about all of this. I'm bringing you a 1920s case. Ah, yes. Take me back to the 20s. She likes some old timey. I do love the old timeies. It's the roaring 20s. Mm. We're talking about flappers. Women starting to become sexually liberated. And their hats are fabulous. Their hats are fabulous. There's some prohibition. Their breasts are voluptuous. Right. Prohibition, but nobody gives a fuck. Mm -mm. There's speakeasies everywhere. Ah. People are finding the alcohol. And all of those things have a little something to do with the story today. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. You've brought me a Christmas present. You're welcome. Ah. And I also am bringing you a little bit, like, it's a mesh between Halloween and Christmas because there's some mm. fun stuff here as well. I'm going to bring you a legend, some sp- a spooky okay. as well. Okay. So when you think of New Orleans, your thoughts are immediately going to go to the French Quarter, Mardi Gras, and the 24-hour partying that is Bourbon Street. Sure. And while it's true that the French Quarter is known for that vibrant cultural scene, shall we say, it's important to consider the time frame within which these murders occurred. So it's the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. The French Quarter is still a mostly working class district, and it had been most of the 19th century. So wealthy people had actually left the French Quarter and moved over to the Garden District and along Esplanade and Esplanade and St. Charles Avenues, which are beautiful. And if you drive down them, and we're talking, these are those big houses with the like 200-year-old angel mm. oaks. Like and, these yeah, are beautiful. And the pillars out front. Yes. And all, yeah, all of that beautiful architecture and then also they had moved further uptown as well well warehouses and sugar refineries kept the working class down in the french quarter and also added to the noise levels but that's what kept it uh, uh working class property values had decreased in the french quarter and close proximity to jobs kept the blue collar feel to the quarter people could walk to work yeah Perfect. But crime had also increased dramatically, as that tends to do. And in this case, known as the Trunk Murders, goes, which, by the way, goes down in history, in New Orleans history, as one of the most violent murders of the time. Oh, no shit. Of the 20s? Yes. But strangely, it is not discussed much today, and it's kind of hard to find information on. Instead, folklore and legend abound. Hmm. So on a crime tour of the city... 
I heard a legend told. And this is the legend of the sausage ghost of 1920s New Orleans. <laughs> you fucking brought me a sausage ghost. I'm giving God, you sausage. I love you. Sausage ghost. And here's going to be a trigger alert, guys, because the whole thing's really a trigger alert. It's pretty grotesque. Okay. I'm hoping that the time frame and the way within which I shall tell it will make it a little less queasy. When you say sausage ghost sausage and then trigger ghost. alert, guys, are you talking about male genitalia and they should hold their bits? I'm or not. Just, okay. But if you feel inclined, Anytime I'm talking to touch your bits, I am not offended. Okay. We're good. So on this crime tour, there's this, uh, there's a Louisiana folktale book called Gumbo Yaya. Do you want to buy it already? Of course, of course I do. You, do. you just said Gumbo Yaya. Lyle Saxon's the author. Okay. And Gumbo Yaya in this book of tales uh, talks about the, the sausage ghost legend. So the sausage ghost legend is about German immigrants. Their names are Mr. and Mrs. Because women didn't have names then. Hans right. Mueller. Hans Mueller. I feel like I'm in Die Hard. amazing. So in the mid-19th century, apparently, they opened a sausage factory on the ground floor at 725 Ursuline Street, which happens to be a few doors down from the murder I'm going to tell you about later. Okay. So some weird link, LinkedIn info there. The folklore Some weird says, sausage links there. Sausage links. God, I set you right <laughs> up. The folklore says that Hans Mueller killed his wife, and that to Ooh. hide his crime, he made sausages out oh, of her body. God, no, no. And served them to the unsuspecting public from his sausage shop. You fucking know Hans did that. <laughs> he did. That is not a folklore. Listen, Hans. Though, but listen, apparently his wife was a crone before her time. Oh. And he developed an eye for a sweet young thing. Fucking Hans. When committing the crime, he must have been so impassioned that apparently he pushed his wife into the huge meat grinder in their factory, clothes and all. Just a little whoops. Oops. She tripped. Over her skirts. He was only discovered when a customer bit into a piece of sausage to find that he had bitten into Mm-mm. Mrs. Mueller's wedding ring. No! Oh, he didn't even take the jewelry off Nothing. first? So oh, Hans. The ghost of Mrs. Mueller is rumored to haunt the shop and was said to have haunted her murderer husband to the point of insanity. I love her. Lyle Saxon, the author of Gumbo Yaya, uh-huh. quotes, One night soon after, he heard a thump, thump, thump around his boiler vat. Then he saw the bloody ghost of his wife with her head crushed to a pulp coming toward him. Shrieking, he fled from the place. Hans was apparently carted off to an insane asylum to live out his days. Oh, wow. I, I just got to say, you push me into a sausage grinder I'm coming for back a young hottie. <laughs> I am absolutely coming back to haunt your ass. At the worst case scenario, when you eat that sausage that contains me, you're going to be so fucking sick. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I love that she haunted him to the point of insanity. Right. This I can get behind. Now. Is she one of my ancestors? Tell me she is. She may be. But I'm going to break your heart now just for a minute. (laughs) Okay. Because searching archives, there are no Mueller's, Hmm. no sausage company, no grisly deaths. However, some have tried to link that tale to these trunk murders. And I'm going to let you decide. Okay. Some things will sound familiar and perhaps it's a stretch, but irrespective, we have some real murders here with some pretty similar facts that come into play Mm -hmm. and murders that became perhaps a perverted folklore opportunity. 
It is strange that the trunk murders don't get spoken of much. But this folklore does. But this folklore that is very similar exists where there's no evidence of same. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down, baby. I just thought it was fun and something different. So here we're going to roll with it. Yeah, you brought me uh, gumbo yaya. Like, and, which, and by the sausage, way, sausage, m- yeah, gumbo, yeah, yeah, gumbo, yeah, yeah. From now on, when Matt says something that I just think is stupid, I'm just gonna mumble gumbo, yeah, yeah, perfect, and just have him go, What? Huh? And I'm like, What? <laughs> Terrorize him. In 1927, two families shared a small New Orleans residence located in the second floor rooms at 715 Ursulines Avenue. Oh, Ursulines again. Yeah. Really? I said this is... 715. And 725 Uh was the alleged address of the Sausage Ghost. I remember. Okay. So 715 (laughs) Ursulines, that's what it's called, bitch. That's what we're calling it. (laughs) The occupants... If I'm ever hunted by a ghost, let it be a penis ghost. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be. You know it's going to be. The occupants at 715 Ursulines were Teresa and Leonide Moiti, who were married to brothers, Henry and Joseph. So we don't know their maiden names, don't have a lot of information on them, but they did. Because they were women and they don't matter. No. Right. Nope. They do a little eventually. I'm saying for the time. No, for the, me too. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, we come into play. That surprises me. (laughs) We were recognized. They married married brothers, Henry and Joseph Moiti. So Teresa and Henry had three small children residing with them. Okay. And Joseph and Leonide had two children as well. So there's, what, nine of them crammed into mm-hmm. these rooms. Now, interestingly, at the time these murders occurred, Joseph and the two children were actually staying with family outside of the city. Okay. So there's a total of nine of them at one time in these rooms at 715 Ursulines. Which lines. sounds like hell, by um, the way. It, let me get to the size, too. So there is, which is always disappointing. <laughs> we're, we're, yes, we always get to the size. There is little known about the early lives, of, as I stated, of Teresa and Leonide. Sure. Apparently married to the Moody brothers and hailing from New Iberia, Louisiana. Oh, okay. They moved to find opportunity in yeah. the big city of New Orleans. Makes sense. The housing was described as tenement, squalid, and mm. nearly without furniture and barely a thousand square feet in size. Yeah, I can so. smell it. Nine mm-hmm. people in a thousand square feet. And if you have ever been in the French Quarter in the evening after people have been wandering, it doesn't smell lovely. No, no. People in general don't people smell don't lovely. People don't smell lovely. Henry and Joseph mostly did odd jobs, doing their best to provide for their families, but often coming up short. I don't feel like they were career men. They were just out there trying to make a penny. Sure. At the end of the day, they were perpetually late on rent, never enough food in the home, and circumstances became dire. Okay. I've met these men before. Yes. All right. And one night, sick of living in the conditions they were in, Teresa Moiti shows her husband, Henry, a $5 bill in one account. I'm going to go with the $5 for now. And told him that she could make more money than he ever could. Now, Henry took this as her engaging in woman of the night type work. Sure. Flirting with other men to gain their favor and their money and possibly more. Mm-hmm. She's, and if that is true, she's not wrong. Right. And now, apparently, Teresa was nice to look at because Henry was a jealous man. Okay. And he was sick of seeing what he determined as suitors everywhere they went. Oh, God. Then get yourself an ugly wife, Henry. Right. Exactly. This is why you married down, <laughs> yes. Henry. If you don't want the attention... 
Well, he went into a rage, becoming crazy angry, but he told her he would forgive her if she would just be a good wife. Oh, God, I hate him already. Just be a good wife. Just be an ugly good wife, Teresa. God damn it. Damn it, Teresa. Things had become so bad that Joseph, Joe, he had left his wife, Leonide, as I indicated. He was convinced that she was running around and took the kids out of the city to go live with family. Oh, okay. And back in New Iberia. Probably had nothing to do with the fact that his family would support him and he wouldn't have the pressures of having to support his family. Well, apparently Joseph had come home and found Leonide, who he called Lonnie, in the embrace of another man. Oh, for money? I don't know. Or just for pleasure. In the embrace of another man. Uh Uh-oh. She told him. When he found her in this embrace to get the hell out. And he took the daughter. And it's a son. warm hug. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Took okay. the daughter. I don't feel like uh, the embrace of another man maybe means a hug. Oh, <laughs> I mean, how, I, I don't know for sure. How but naive I'm of me. Throwing that out there is 1920s <laughs> lingo. So now later I plan on going and embracing a man. <laughs> <laughs> he takes the daughter and son to go back home to New Iberia to live with his parents. So Leonide, now split from Joe and childless and free, stays <laughs> with uh, Henry and Teresa and their three children. I'm imagining this is super comfortable. And pro- I'm sure. And also probably stays in the embrace of the man. Um, n- nope. Not so much Henry. Oh, the other man? Yeah, that's yeah. a distinct possibility with what info I have yeah. to present to you. So this is when they apparently begin to have a lovely time. And by they, I mean Leonide and Teresa partying it up. And Uh bringing men home when Henry was away. Okay. So Teresa, Henry's wife, actually had a a suspected love interest, a Joseph Caruso. And once they were found walking, holding hands. For shame. Walking, holding hands. She shouldn't be doing that. She's a married woman. Unless she was, he was blind. That is the only case scenario where it would be okay if you're starving i i wouldn't you hold somebody's hands for five bucks yes well five bucks by the way is seventy dollars today oh yeah i'll hold your hand for seventy dollars yeah daddy we're yeah. That's exactly Especially what's gonna if happen i'm hungry right wait until we go to a podcast conference you may yeah. hold our hands for 70 bucks <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a kissing booth only less With germs <laughs> oh shit that's funny so henry the day that the five dollar bill was flashed in front of his face uh put himself to work walking the streets and trying to get business for a sign painting venture okay okay he's like i gotta make some money for sure or Or she's just gonna gonna leave me yeah so he sounds like one of these goes those guys with big dreams and no money to accomplish them Mm -hmm. he's got all the ideas same man same got it yep (laughs) when he got back to the home he found Teresa and Leonide packing all of their belongings. Uh-oh. He said that they taunted him, saying they were going to, quote unquote, set up shop, which, of course, he took to mean they were going into the sex business. Right. So they're going to set up their sex shop. Well, you know, five bucks a pop. Yeah. Volva's open. I get it. <laughs> Volva's open. Well, when Henry went back out on the street in the French Quarter, uh, he took to doing what the French Quarter is now known for, engaging in the drink, slurping the hurricanes and the voodoo punch. And flashing for beads. And apparently, I don't think they had beads oh. then. And I don't, I wouldn't have thrown, I think all the beads were back with Teresa and Leo. <laughs> Leah, Leah and I, and I. I think you might be right. So he apparently went for the first time, it was reported, to a speakeasy and quote unquote fell into a for whiskey the, jug. For the first 
first time. It was noted specifically for the first time. Yes. So I'm must sure not he had never partaken no. before. Now remember, this is during the height of prohibition, but alcohol not hard to find in no. New Orleans. No, I'd like to think that my ancestors ran a speakeasy. I'd I'm, be disappointed if they didn't. Mine were burned at the stake in Salem, so yours can certainly uh, own a speakeasy. Yeah, yeah. Miss Kitties. And yes. Uh, someone, tell me somewhere a great-grandmother was a brothel owner. Has to I, be. Uh, it's in my bones. <laughs> it's in something. <laughs> so, you know, I have like the dullest, chillest life, by the way, for someone who talks like I, like seriously. Oh, I know. I got married young, had babies young. Like, Same. I'm so boring, but... I like to think that somewhere down the line I could have been a madam or a speakeasy owner. It's never too late, Charnel. Don't be Henry. Follow through with the Follow plans. Follow the dream. Follow the dream. <laughs> so Henry was reported to have fallen into conversation with the bartender and ended up buying a sugarcane machete. Do you know what a sugarcane machete is? No. So I'll when we show our, our listeners here, I'll, I'll show you a picture. But it is like a very long, almost like a cleaver. Well, you said machete. Well, and a machete, you know, we get used to the ones oh, that, you know, that you I go got, out and yeah, whip yeah, the bushes sugar down cane. With. And yes, actual okay. sugar cane. Right. Yeah. So this okay. is a machete that literally would have been used to cut sugar cane. And yep. sugar cane is tough. This it's makes sense bamboo-y. to me. Like yep. this yep. is a strong I'm picturing a it now. implement. It took me a second to get there, but I'm following right. you now. She's picking up what I'm putting down. I am. In New Orleans, even people who were considered of modest means in the 1920s could still afford a housekeeper. And it was often Are you for the- fucking kidding no, me? No, seriously. I can't, and I want now, to. Imagine, you're oh. probably coming through, getting paid, you know, a quarter or something, and they're cleaning, like, all the rooms in a whole house where people are just renting rooms out, okay? Yeah. But it, it wasn't uncommon to have a cleaning lady for the rooms in the quarter. And on the morning of October 27th, 1927, Nettie Compass arrived to clean the Moidy's apartment and was met with a gruesome, bloody, and frankly shocking scene. Uh-oh. She steps into a pool of blood, and this, freaking her out, causes her to run from the apartment. Sure. So two men arrive to assist her, reportedly insurance men, strangely enough. Just walking around, knocking on doors, asking if they want to buy insurance? Well, why not? And It one, seems very 1920s. It is. I'm just, just an, an insurance, insurance man, man walking hello, the streets. Hello, Dal. Want to buy some life insurance? Hello, governor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, they're wearing cute hats. They too. are. They yeah. have to be. So you have these insurance men and then this George William Healy. Now, one recollection indicated and actually referred to him as the New Orleans superintendent of police, but they are wrong because okay. I researched it and Healy was actually a local reporter. Oh. In fact, so the two, the people that come in to assist Nettie are two insurance men and George William Healy, a reporter. And not only am I positive that he was a reporter, but I found his 1976 memoir entitled uh, The Southern Journalist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a Southern Journalist. So oh, okay. Healy's a Southern journalist who in uh, 1976, so he lived quite a while, wrote a memoir, and he described the bloody scene that he walked into so he's in like, 1927. He just, she had happens to run into him and he's like hey hot off the press here you say what do you got yeah dude isn't it that so is interesting just so happens to run into a reporter being the first person she sees out there but you're in the french quarter um over in this area there there are little newspapers and stuff oh sure and, and actually there's still a relatively big newspaper there which existed then um i think so we'll get to mm -hmm. that in a minute in his 1976 memoir describing the bloody scene he states we found red stains on the floor, 
and saw a large trunk in a bedroom partially open. Mm-mm. Trigger alert. Mm-mm. When I pulled up the trunk lid. Don't pull up the trunk lid. A woman's body. Mm-hmm. Arms and legs yeah. that were severed that is part from the of her torso, body. but they were severed from the torso. <laughs> oh, they were kind of stacked in, was exposed. Oh. So this is this is a woman who no longer has her appendages and everything is shoved in the trunk kind of to fit. It's a smaller, mid, mid-sized trunk. You know, old ste- like a steamer trunk? Yeah, so they used the trunk for exactly the intended purpose of using a trunk. Yes. To store things yes. neatly. In this case, a, a human. There was oh. a blood-soaked mattress in a bedroom and a bathroom cabinet dripping with blood, is part oh. of his quote. The bathroom cabinet is dripping with blood? Yes. So Healy borrowed a neighbor's phone. Apparently, you know, probably what? probably had a wall phone well, in certainly. the 1920s, right? The community line where you pick up and all your right. neighbors can listen. Right. And y- yes, every, yeah. yes, yes. Put so me through to... He requested... A second reporter. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Swear to God. Get my boss down here. Okay. And then, no, just a friend. And oh. then he suggests maybe someone should call the coroner. Maybe. But when, news first. When the coroner and Healy's female colleague, the other reporter, Gwen, arrived. Of course, her name is Gwen. She, I love this. Gwen finds some other discoveries. And here's a quote. Look, Gwen said, holding up objects. Uh-uh. Lady fingers. No! And four fingers had been cut from a woman's hand. No! I, is it okay that I like Gwen? Yes. After playing. I want. <laughs> you want to go and pick yeah. fingers up? The opportunity someday. Yeah. No, no, not really. But it is kind of funny. After placing the fingers back on the bed, Gwen moved to a second bedroom, found a second trunk, Mm-mm. and Gwen opened it. No, didn't we learn from the first trunk? We did. But don't Gwen, open Gwen, the second trunk. Gwen wasn't there for the first trunk. So this was like <laughs> a, sur- a jack in the box for it was, her. I mean, I think she knew what was going to be in it, but I'm she thinking. wanted the opportunity. It contained a second woman's body. Imagine that. She states that there was a bloodied cane knife on top of the torso part of really? the butchered woman. A cane knife, you say? Just heard about that. Oh. Now, police actually did report things a little bit differently from what was quoted in this memoir, but nothing super significant. It's still disturbingly graphic and similar. They reported finding two smaller traveling trunks packed with the butchered remains of two young women. Mm-hmm. The clothing had been tossed from the trunks and was littering the living room floor. And this is also mm. where they reportedly found the severed fingers. So they're saying they found it on the floor, not the bed. Okay. Well, again, kind of insignificant. Yeah. These were the trunks that Leonide and Teresa had packed up the evening before to leave. And they ended up in their own trunks. So they were going to be leaving. Just, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, not, not how they intended, though. No, not in, they literally leaving in the trunks. Correct. Yeah, not leaving with the trunks. The severed fingers that were discovered belonged to Henry's wife, Teresa Moiti, and her wedding ring was missing. There was still a gold bracelet. Was it found in sausage? <laughs> no, but close. No, there was still a gold bracelet hanging delicately from the wrist of her arm, if you can picture this. Her arm that is not attached oh, to her body. Oh, that is a detail, so isn't it? What's interesting about it, though, is the bracelet's there, but we're missing the wedding ring, girl. Yeah. And there were clumps of hair on the floor. Okay, so okay. this was this was violent. 
For sure. The Orleans Parish Coroner, Dr. George Rowling, told reporters that he believed the killer or killers had bludgeoned the women with a billy club and then used the sugarcane machete to decapitate them, decapitate them and sever their limbs. Okay. Dr. Rowling found a deep gash in Teresa Moiti's back. Just random, this super deep gash. Oh. And that is where they found her gold wedding band. What? Like it didn't accidentally get there, Charnel. There is absolutely no way no. that you could... No. Also very disturbing. How do you just like, here's a good place for this. Yeah. So here's the. Sorry, we could have done with that. That was great. That was, that was not an an added noise. I have no idea. So here's the scene. You've got Teresa and Leonide's clothing and personal effects from the trunk thrown everywhere. There's kids clothes, lace garments, silk stockings, and beauty creams. Sure. And of note. It sounds like my bedroom. Right. But, But thrown all over the floor instead because. Those uh, trunks were filled with other things now. Right. And of note, there was a manuscript written in Leonide's hand that was found in a cabinet in her bedroom. Although it contained many grammatical errors, it told a veiled autobiographical story. But I'm going to make you sit on that for a bit uh, in suspense because we're going to get to it later. Okay. After after the murders were discovered, the prime suspects immediately became Henry and Joseph Moiti. Sure. Joseph immediately turns himself in. He hadn't even been living there. He turns himself in immediately and told investigators that his brother Henry had killed both women. No shit. Joseph told the police that both the couples and all their children had been living in the cramped apartment and that he moved out after catching Leonide with another man. And that they drove each other insane, essentially. Because they lived in... 500 square feet with nine people. Right. Mostly children. Neighbors confirmed that they could hear bitter fights about money, infidelity, and there were wild drinking parties with the women women and gentlemen callers. Mm-hmm. So that kind of substantiated what Joseph had stated. Sure. But Joseph left the situation. I feel mm-hmm. like he made a good choice. He really tried to remove himself and his children from the bad yes. situation. Good job, Joe. But Joseph had obviously had some contact with his brother or knew that things had deteriorated because right. he told the police that his brother Henry had fled to Camp Street Boarding House, a Camp Street Boarding House, and Camp Street's um, just a couple uh, streets over from Bourbon Street. Okay. And off uh, near uh, Ursulines as well. And that he was going to plan to board a ship soon. So there with were, two drunks. Well, <laughs> he didn't say that. I think he contacted him after he did it okay. because he clearly knew he was on the run. Okay. Joseph knew Henry was on the run. He said he fled to Camp Street. So there were seven vessels that were supposedly or supposed to be sailing out of New Orleans that day. They were all radioed and they were put on notice to look for a dark, bushy haired man with very dark eyes and a tattoo on one arm. Of a nude woman with a flower in her hair. Really? It doesn't get more 1920s it than this. It does not. Somebody needs to make this movie, by the way. For sure. Because I'm watching it, and I might try out for a part. <laughs> and radio dispatchers alerted the ship specifically to look for a stowaway passenger, and they described him as tattooed and singularly hairy. <laughs> I, had to, I had to put it in. Just let that be a description for me sometime. I don't want to go out as tattooed, tattooed and, singularly and singularly hairy. hairy. I mean, I'm going to go out as tattooed, but oh, tattooed shit. and smooth as a baby's butt. <laughs> and sugar waxed and all over. Sugar waxed all over. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful where we go with this conversation now. <laughs> there was a manhunt that led through swamps and shipboards before... On Saturday, October 29th, Henry was pulled from nearby Bayou Lafouche. He had attempted to 
go onto one of the, or to sneak his way onto one of the freighters. Okay. But after his tattoo was recognized, the crew delivered him to the Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office. Lafouche. Lafouche. I love the way that sounds. A friend of mine from NOLA, again, helped me with the pronunciation of that, as well as the next uh, thing on the newspaper here. Lafouche Parish. Lafouche Parish. So he also told me that this is pronounced Times Picayune. So the Times Picayune... Oh, this is the newspaper. Okay. Went into graphic and it's still there, by the way. So okay. that's what I find interesting. 1920s, the Times-Picayune is there. That's why it doesn't surprise me that there were news reporters around because that's how they did is walk right around there. to sure. get their information. Okay. And w- relatively near to my hotel where I was staying at in um, probably a much, you know, more modern building, Times-Picayune right there on the side. Mm. I passed by it a number of times. Mm-hmm. So it goes into graphic detail about the murders. And pointed out the manner in which the two bodies of the women were mutilated and dismembered. And this, they said, indicated a man familiar with this trade. Oh, like a butcher? And Henry Moiti was discovered to have worked briefly as a butcher's assistant at a sausage factory in New Iberia before coming to New Orleans. sausage factory, you guys. It all circles around. Yeah, I told you, we're gonna, I'm giving you all kinds of things to think about. Oh. It's just fun at this point. We're sorry that two women died, but... Absolutely, in a very intriguing. brutal way. I was going to ask you, though, about um, indication of having the wherewithal of knowing how to dismember, because that is a butcher's trade, yes. you know, that you... You do have to know how to do those things, get through the joints and whatnot. Otherwise, there is a very specific quote that I'm going to get to later that addresses that. Okay. So, yep. uh, Henry Moody apparently had worked as a butcher's assistant briefly at a sausage factory in New Iberia. Now, when Henry Moody was caught, he came up with some lame explanation that the murders must have been by this. So there was this redheaded Norwegian seafarer. Leave the redheads alone. It's always a redheaded Norse. Uh, semen, right? Who forced him to assist him in this butchery? You shush. They murdered his wife and made him help. I God dang it! I hate it when people make me help them. Yeah, butcher but people again. If you're gonna blame somebody, blame a ginger. <laughs> blame so, the redheaded Norseman. Right. Semen. Well, by Tuesday, November 1st, less than a week after the murders, Henry made a full confession and admitted there was no villain semen. Imagine that. There's yeah. no villain. Oh, there's villain semen. Yeah, I <laughs> met some. <laughs> Been there. Right. Oh, college. <laughs> Henry's confession and trial were a breeze. He detailed his motive, but was insistent that the alcohol was to blame. You know, saying, oh, blame it, blame on, it on the, the a- 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 alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're welcome, everybody. He said, yeah, we ain't rapper. No, no. He no. said he had become enraged at the thought of Teresa having an affair with Joseph Caruso. Sure. This is the guy she was said to be holding hands with. And he's got a hell of a good name. Well, he also happened to be their landlord. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. So there it is. Well, he wasn't paying the rent. They couldn't pay the rent. I think she was paying she the rent. She was paying the rent. Yeah. Listen, there's a lot of surviving. Charnel, you are going to hear a lot of blame placed on these women because of their behaviors. But remember that we can we can blame the women for stepping out and doing the naughty all you want. But they were surviving. Yeah, there's what there's a difference. There wasn't food between survival and do and actual infidelity stepping out. Right. In in my opinion, although I don't necessarily disagree that they decided they had found a lucrative business and were ready to be done. Too. Agreed. So yes. Also, seems like they were whooping it up just right. a little bit based on what other well, people were saying. Well, especially Leonide, right? She's like, my husband and my kids husband are gone. My husband and kids left. It's appropriate for me. I've made appropriate arrangements, and now I can party it up. 
<laughs> I mean, she just gave the child neglect 101. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> so, uh, Joseph Caruso here, who happens to be their landlord, by the way, in case you didn't know, a very large Sicilian population moved to New Orleans right around this time. And so Caruso, my guess, is probably a hot little Sicilian. Mm-hmm. So, hot little Sicilian number. Henry Rain makes a fantastic cannoli, he man. Does. <laughs> <laughs> Henry was pushed over the edge by these these women and their flaunting ways and their apparent ability to leave. Like, they were ready. They were packing trunks and were going to do it. The how, audacity. How dare they? The audacity. He kept talking about how neglectful she was with their children and mm-hmm. about their in, her infidelities. Sure. And then he began, began to blame Leonide for being a bad influence on his wife. Right, 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 right. He confessed to the DA that Teresa and Caruso were pretty thick and spoke of them taking oh caruso was thick <laughs> right he's i was gonna make a sausage reference <laughs> and spoke of them taking friendly excursions on streetcars and stealing hugs and passing notes in the darker corners of 715 ursa lines brazenly and right under his nose we just went from i murdered them for fucking to they were stealing hugs and taking train rides well and he he has he described some, a romance he has some strong feelings here we're gonna get Woo. to too it was not hard for prosecutors to prove that this murder was premeditated and apparently nettie right. compass the housekeeper that discovered the victim uh, that stepped in the blood yeah. well she had a lot of good information that we discover so she testified um that he told her uh the day before the murders he should take a pistol and shoot both of those bastards doesn't say who the bastards were, whether it was her, whether it was Caruso and somebody else, but okay. had made this statement. And she's just minding her own business cleaning houses, She's like, right? let me clean this shit. She also disclosed that later that evening, but before the murders, so before he apparently sees the trunks all passed up, there's a little bit weirdness with timeline because he's saying that he got home, the trunks are packed, and he, and, you know, and then he goes out drinking. She's saying that she saw Henry, Teresa, Leonide, and the children leave the apartment and that they were in good spirits, like maybe going to get dinner. Okay. She did also say, though, that Henry pulled her aside as they were leaving for dinner or wherever they were going and whispered to her not to be scared if Nettie and her family heard the children crying in the early morning. So oh. Nettie and her family, the the cleaner there, the yeah. housekeeper. Does she live? I think she the... lives there, and I think okay. that's pretty normal that yeah. the housekeeper would live there, and then they go around cleaning all of the rooms, the yeah. apartments in the building. Makes sense. Oh, but just to preface, yeah. if you hear the children crying, don't pay worry. no mind. So here's uh. something that bothers me. No one has ever said anywhere where the kids were when the bodies were found, and right. and I'm going to tell you right now, you're not getting an answer. So I make two assumptions. One is that. They they were there. They were there, Megan. But there's no way. Because the reporter, he wrote in his memoir all these things about the scene. Okay. No, he never said a word about the kids. Okay. I assume that Henry took them, because he's gone, yeah. and dropped them off somewhere when he ran from the murder scene. And I'm assu- I am honestly making the assumption that they're back in New, they were back in New Iberia with the, the, the family. family. With, yeah, with Joseph. But and they aren't mentioned, and it bothers me. And perhaps I need to do some more research. If any of you feel like researching more in-depth than I did, although I find that hard, highly unlikely. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm being a smart ass. Let me know. Drop I, me a line and let me know where I, the kids I were. I wonder that. Yeah. So there's no indication that the children were found in the apartment with the butchered Well, women. thank God for that. Yeah. But he I did imagine say something he would about probably the, mention the kids. Well, here's what happens, though. There. And he's going to, we're going to hear in a minute about how the murders occur. So this is why I get the distinct impression that the, I think the kids were there 
I know the kids were there when he murdered them. And then he leaves afterward. Oh my God. And takes them. So at the trial, the parish coroner that uh, Dr. Rowling, he testified that the killer who decapitated Mrs. Henry Morty was skilled with a knife. So as to know enough not to try to cut through the bone, but to cut through the joint Uh and that her head had been skillfully removed. Yeah. This is where evidence was presented that Henry had worked as a butcher's assistant. Mm -hmm. Gotta know where those joints are. Now you want me to throw a weird one in? Yeah. Now, strangely. So one account is that when this butcher at a new Iberia sausage factory was contacted, he reported that the moity brother that worked for him was actually named Joseph. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. No shit. Yep. But that's that was just one account. The other is that it was Henry. Whoa. Henry Moody was convicted of the murders on March 1928 and was sentenced to life in prison. He began his sentence at Louisiana State Penitentiary. I believe that's Angola, by the way, which we've discussed in a prior episode, on July 6th of 1928. I'm going to skip ahead Way far before I take his back again. I'm going to skip ahead to 1957 before I jump back because more about Henry Moody and the murders comes up. In a 1957 letter from a Louisiana State Penitentiary prison warden, Henry must have disclosed or had written some more memoirs. And he discloses that Teresa flaunted a $10 bill in Henry's face Mm. and bragged that she could make more in an hour as a prostitute than he could in a week. So she's not wrong. We're getting more uh, detail here. Uh Or Henry's angrier. And is, and is more impassioned, right? Okay, so right? now he is exaggerating more? Is that... Well, there's appeals that are filed, so we're going to get to them. Henry said that he returned home to find Teresa and Leonide packing their belongings in those two trunks. He said that he went on a bender and took the opportunity to purchase the murder weapon. When night fell over the French Quarter and the women and children went to bed, Henry paced and drank and thought about the cane knife that he had purchased, and he admitted in his confession also to the DA that he had considered killing himself and the children but changed his mind. He changed his mind when he thought about Teresa and Joe Caruso sleeping together, Mm. doing the dirty, Mm -hmm. having the relations. He stood over Teresa while she was sleeping, studied the angles of the knife and then found himself swinging the knife at her. Like he was possessed. He had even told the DA before that she didn't say a word or move. She was relaxed and the blood just rushed. Well, of course she didn't say, you cut her head off, man. Well, I think she he did wasn't going to say He was slashing at first. Oh, is this into her back? <clears throat> I don't know when he did that. I think that was intentional for him to put the wedding ring in. Oh, or so it was little. just deep enough that he was like, eh, you know, fuck this, taking the ring off and shoving it in this. I, I don't know. He went into Leonide's bedroom, his sister-in-law, yeah. and struck her as she fell from the bed that she was sleeping in. So I don't know if he tries to like pull her off, but as she's falling, he strikes her. Okay. This is when he states that he cut up the bodies and stuffed the women into the trunks that they had packed with their belongings in to leave him. So back to Henry beginning his life sentence. So apparently he had a lot of freedom and enjoyment in prison for a man who'd committed two brutal murders. Who, who had literally cut yep. up bodies and put them in trunks? Yep. He gets liberties? Well, in 1934, he was made a trustee at the prison and was given responsibility for special assignments, and so he was less guarded. What the fuck is the world? What? Through his whole trial and the time he was imprisoned, he professed that he still loved his wife and even claimed in 1940 on the U.S. Census that he was still married. If Years love, after her death. If love means Cutting me up and putting me in a trunk. I want no part of it. Please don't love me. In 1941, he appealed for a pardon, and it was rejected by the governor. In the summer 
1944, prisoner number 18038, Henry Moiti, on his way to the post office on a routine trip. He gets to go to the post office? Simply hired himself right up a taxi to take him to Hammond, Louisiana. Well, of course he fucking did. He Well, he had, recent, he had just been told he wasn't getting the pardon a few years before, and apparently he is so unguarded. He's a trustee. He gets to take shit to the post office and has all these liberties. So, to be a man. 1944. Wow. Routine trip. Hires himself up a taxi, and he does. It takes him to Hammond, Louisiana. Then in Hammond, he caught the Illinois Central Panama Limited, which is a train, okay. on route to Chicago. Yeah. A man named George Pravosti, who was the superintendent of the prison camps, wasn't real concerned and figured Henry would come back on his own. Since, sure. he, since he had served 16 years of his sentence and maybe had a chance at getting pardoned due to temporary insanity because they were still working that intoxicated angle, by the way, at the time he killed <laughs> yes, Leonidas. Because intoxication makes you insane. That's oh, the same thing. You are not going to like this case, Charnel. Oh, I already don't. I will have you know. That Henry Moody did not come right back. Oh, I bet not. <laughs> he did not come right back. I'm, I'm shooketh with this information, Megan. Two years later, in 1946, Henry was stopped for suspicious behavior by a police officer in St. Louis, Missouri. With a machete? No. Okay. He was eventually identified and was returned to the Angola prison. Uh-huh. Even though he took what? himself... Oh, first of all, <laughs> why are you acting suspicious when you are out of escaped from... You didn't even... Can We can't even call it an escape. Charnel. He didn't even escape. He had liberties Charnel. to go to the post office and just walk Sometimes... Out. When you have escaped from prison and you're walking down the road and you see the popo, you act suspicious. You act suspicious accidentally. Oh, okay. I'm just saying, keep it cool, Henry. Have you ever been speeding and then the police pull up behind you and you are instantly aware of every half mile you might be going over the speed limit and then you're going under and then you're like looking at the speedometer and you're like, am I in my shifting lanes? Honey, I slam on the brakes when I'm not speeding because I saw a police officer and I'm like, I don't even know why I did that. I'm sorry. And now I'm going right. way below the speed limit. So Henry is obviously suspicious. Um, he's identified and returned to the prison, which I believe again is Angola from what uh, information I have. So even though he took himself on this little two-year detour from prison, also known as a as what I will call the moity vacation, right. <laughs> the Louisiana Pardon Board recommended his release in 1946, a year after they got him back. I'm sorry, because be, what what is the world? Yeah, that's, Are you serious? I'm serious. He just get like, oh, you know what? You were good for those two years yep. that you had escaped prison. And I think that this we're is just you've you've done enough time. I think for chopping up two women. <laughs> they're going with this temporary insanity thing. And so um, as long as your next wife does not cheat on you. Well, the public is here, not in any danger here. Let me get to that. On March 26th of 1948, Governor Jimmy Davis signed the pardon, freeing him legally. So Henry Morty was free 21 years after killing his wife and sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Well, setting Henry Morty free almost cost another person their life. After getting out of prison, Henry moved to California and to L.A. He went to La La Land. Wow. Everything's better in La La Land. And at an L.A. hotel found that his luck in love continued where he shot his girlfriend, what? Alberta Orange, in wow. the chest. 
aren't we all shocked that he's continued yep. to be violent against his partner? He shoots Alberta Orange in the chest. I, I heard one person say, or one uh, document said uh, wife, but because her name was Orange, and I assume that we're still um, old-fashioned enough to take last names, other ones I, I took as, as yeah. more accurate with girlfriend. So mm-hmm. that he shot Alberta his girlfriend. Alberta Orange, huh? Alberta Orange in oh. the chest, puncturing her lung and leaving her to suffocate in a hotel room. Oh, she Alberta. lived. Oh, God. Okay. She lived. Badass bitch. But he was sentenced to five years at Folsom Prison for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Okay. The the California court that sentenced him was unaware that he had been previously- Of course, because they don't have systems that are talking to each other. They don't. And he was pardoned, too. So they were Um, unaware that he was um, handed uh, concurrent life sentences in a New Orleans court two decades earlier. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, given the time. Yeah. So don't worry, though, because in 1957, while serving his term at Folsom, Henry died of a stroke. Well, I'll be. God took him. It wasn't. Yeah. No, nobody else. Or one of those. Maybe he saw the spirit of one of the people. Perhaps there was a ghost. And that caused the stroke. Well, word reached. It was a sausage ghost. (laughs) It was a sausage ghost. Well, word reached Louisiana that Henry had died. And in 1959, when Jimmy Davis campaigned for his governor's seat, a reporter asked him why he paroled the man responsible for one of the most shocking murders, butchery, in the French Quarter. And he replied, that's not on me. The parole board insisted, saying they never should have convicted him by reason of insanity. So there's our explanation. Oh, my gosh. They really thought, well, you've got to think about it, though. We don't have psychology back then. All right. This is the twenties. And you have to believe that that someone who is capable of literally butchering their own wife and their sister-in-law to that gruesome degree must've been crazy, must've been insane. That's exactly, that's exactly what what we hear. Yeah. There's no other explanation. They had to have been acting insanely. Yep. Now, when you tour New Orleans and they tell you about some of their more famous criminals and murders, you strangely don't hear anything about these murders, the trunk murders, that in 1927, the Times-Picayune proclaimed to be the most brutal murder committed in New Orleans in crime history. But you do find stories where the legacy of Henry's trunk murders continues. In some closely related facts in the sausage ghost folklore, where a woman was murdered by her butcher husband, and served to customers on Arsenal's Ave until a gold wedding ring was served up to a customer. Mm-hmm. On November 2nd in 1927, so this was about a week after the murders, mm-hmm. Henry Moiti proclaimed from his prison cell to the Times-Picayune, if I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces, not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces. My God, I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. Oh, there it is, people. And I believe Got that's it. why we have the trunk yeah. murders at 715 Ursulines in French Quarter with some Cajun folklore yeah. having turned it into the sausage the, ghost. The sausage ghost that was yeah. fed to... Unsuspecting People. patrons who, by the way, Ooh. when you read through that, say things like that the sausage was raved about. It tasted great. And people did find some things other than rings. I think they found some clothing, too. Oh. But I have well, to hope d- you all are in New Orleans <laughs> enjoying some sausage. <laughs> right. Whatever you eat in New Orleans and they put in it, I don't even care. It's delicious. <laughs> so I, it doesn't matter to Human me. Human particles and clothing. I'm sure I've eaten worse. Right. I guarantee it. But I have to leave you with the words of our victim. Okay. So whether anyone likes the actions that these women 
women took making ends meet and we've seen it time and time again they you know becoming women of the night they didn't deserve to be butchered oh no so much focus in tabloid like press talked about the poor husbands and emphasized the infidelities and careless parenting of these women because apparently the husbands weren't responsible for any of it oh no man 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 can't parent no right apparently can't hold a job down or pay for rent either but that manuscript of leonides that was found Mm -hmm. it was believed to have been written as autobiographical and before she and her husband had left new iberia for new orleans and she had tried to publish it in a popular woman's magazine of the time so it must have meant something to her she kept it right yeah so there was a blood-stained rejection slip found at the crime scene making it all the more sad and macabre this cautionary tale is presented as a personal letter and talks about finding joy again after a failed marriage she concludes with an ominous and fitting warning To your readers, young girls especially, please think ahead of you and do not make the mistake I've made because it does not always turn out the right way. You can still be disappointed. Guess it was only my luck to be happy like this, so I warn others not to take the same risk. And the line she leaves us with that haunts her and Teresa's story is this. Be careful, for marriage is a life sentence. Oh, shit. And that is the story of the infamous trunk murders of new orleans the murders of Teresa and leonide morty and happy anniversary to anybody out there celebrating a lovely long marriage <laughs> oh uh, right. my god <clears throat> wow Did you like i it? loved it i loved it and i appreciate the old timing we've had some heavy cases lately i had to do something fun and <sighs> i told i had actually di- was diving into a different case also from new orleans it'll be the last one that i do for a while i, I think i've new orleans everybody out but i like to research when oh, i'm in I cities right and right. so so let me uh, let me find you a brain bath here, mm-hmm. Charnel. Please bathe me. Are you going to get the trophy? I don't know. I, I really want the trophy. Yes. If we... so, the trophy doesn't actually belong to me <clears throat> because I can't even give credit. A friend shared this on Facebook. And look, okay. it's blacked out. Oh, well, I can't is. see who posted this. This okay. is anonymous. Okay. Posted by anonymous. I want you to follow the people numbers here. Okay. My mom invited Kevin to Thanksgiving dinner. Okay. Kevin is the man my Aunt Cheryl has been having an affair with. Uh Uh-oh. Kevin invited my Aunt Cheryl to dinner at a friend's house. But she said no, because she's having dinner with family. Oh. Oh. So they're all invited to the same place. Uh Uh-huh. Right? So Kevin is going to this friend's house alone. This friend's house happens to be my house. My Aunt Cheryl is also having dinner at my house with her husband. Oh, oh. Kevin is my mom's coworker. My Aunt Cheryl met Kevin at a bar when she told my uncle she was working late. No. Kevin, my mom's coworker, showed me a picture of his new girlfriend two weeks ago. Aunt Cheryl. Aunt Cheryl. I told my mom to invite Kevin. <laughs> I can't wait to sit next to Kevin. Also, Aunt Cheryl ruined my relationship a few years ago, and I told her to count her days. <laughs> that day is today. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Oh, God. There's your brain back. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Family. Are, am I right? Wow. This is why, one, the day before Thanksgiving is the biggest drinking night of the year. It is. It is. So the, for those of you in, in recovery, do not go out. Nope. Just stay home. Yep. And for those of you that don't have diagnosed substance abuse issues, 
That is the reason people drink. That is absolutely it, it the is. reason. And also, I am going to go there for Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I want to see what happens. I would love to see what happens there. I bet we can guess what's going to happen. They could end up in your court the following Monday for arraignment. I can only hope that this was shared from a state far, far away. <laughs> I hope so, too. Oh, I'm so sorry for the coughing. Yeah, me oh, too. Oh, gosh. And... Don't be the reason why your family feels like you have they have to drink at Thanksgiving, just as a, a PSA. Well, yes, if not, will. I hope your Thanksgiving didn't end any of you up in jail, that there were no domestic altercations and nobody drank and drove. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what we have to say. And, and enjoy. Enjoy <laughs> your family. Don't cut anybody up and put them into trunks either. Also frowned upon. Try not to do that. Yeah, too, that, that exceeds a domestic assault in a lot of ways. And it's really hard to apologize later. Do serve sausage, though, and tell everybody about this episode. Yeah. While, while they're right. enjoying their sausage. Yeah. That would be good. When, they, when you start to run out of the famous um, uh, sausage and cranberry stuffing, it's getting low and you know there's not going to be leftovers. You say... Hey, Uncle Jack, did anybody ever tell you about the trunk murders in New Orleans? Let's talk <laughs> about Gumbo Yaya and the sausage strike ghost. Strike up the conversation, Gumbo Yaya. I can't wait to use that Here, on that. take that plate of sausage from you. <laughs> did anybody find my ring in your sausage? <laughs> yeah, be careful of your Ooh, fingers uh, as well. Yeah, so all, all right. right. Well, thank you so much. I always enjoy it when you bring me a case. It's such a nice reprieve for me. And... And the people as well. They enjoy your cases too. So, well, we hope you guys have a good holiday. Happy Thanksgiving, people. Happy Thanksgiving. And um, we hope that you keep it curious. Follow us on social media. Send us your case suggestions. Um, you can do it through our website, actually, crimecuriouspodcast.com or crimecurious at yahoo.com or on the socials. And uh, yeah, interact with us. Be nice. If you would like to give us a nice review, we would super love that. It We read all of them. It brightens our day. If people want to correct things like my pronunciation and stuff, I have one word for you. Google. And here's why. Although I had a lot of help pronouncing these names, I still may have not got the, uh, the total sure. enunciation done. Right. Look up on Google YouTube for New Orleans street names because most of them are named after things like Greek muses and stuff, mm -hmm. and they totally mispronounced all of them to begin with. Mm -hmm. So yep. you even, can't... Even Google Translate doesn't help us because no, it's wrong too. No. Like, so I, I put my expert. name into Google Translate. It wasn't right. Tell me what it said. It called me Char Charnel. Charnel. Hi, yep. Charnel. Charnel. <laughs> I yeah. it would get mine right. Mine's so, pretty easy. Yeah. You know, so it's so. just like we try our best. Anyway, but like. I had some expert advice, but if I said something in the wrong dialect or if you're offended by the way I said something, I don't care and have a happy fucking holiday. Absolutely. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.